from VinePair's New York City headquarters, I'm Adam Teeter. And in Seattle, Washington, I'm Zach Jabal. And this is the VinePair Podcast. And Zach, before we kick it off for our last episode of the year, our last episode of the year of I 2019, know, man. Last Woo! episode of the decade. Bring it home. Yeah. Bring it home. Do you have any, do you have any big New Year's Eve plans? Well, New Year's Eve is my birthday. Um, so are you I, serious? I am serious. Oh, yeah. that's hard. I always felt bad for the kids who were born on like New Year's Eve or like Christmas Day or Valentine's Day, or you know, you just always feel bad for those kids because you're like, God, your parents probably just like celebrated both things at the same time. I'm like, oh, it's okay. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was New Year's was not the worst birthday to have from that standpoint. For, for I guess you always get a party. Yeah, so it was Big kind of a party. good thing. It was a good thing, kind of when I was a kid because. We, I would usually have a birthday party on that day. It was good because, you know, no one had school the next day or anything. So it was always, I could always have a party on my birthday. Whereas I think if you have a birthday in the middle, you know, any random day during the middle of the school year, you probably have to wait till the weekend to have a party. So I could always usually have one on my birthday. And my friend's parents were always super happy to send them to like my house for a sleepover because then they could actually go out for New Year's Eve. My parents were maybe le- you know mixed on the yeah you're a less happy <laughs> but you know they, they 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 got the tax break when I was born in uh, at the very end of uh, 1983 instead of the first day of 84 so they were happy about that and uh, and then uh, and then I think as an adult um, you know it's weird in the restaurant industry because as as will be the case this year I often work on my birthday so it's not like I get to go celebrate exactly. Um, but I, I kind of like working on my birthday. It, it gives me something to do. And then, you know, we find a, I usually do a, like a little family lunch or something the day of, and then, you know, whatever it's, I feel like, you know, kind of as an adult birthdays are, you know, you, everyone can have their own opinion. Some people really like to celebrate. I think that's great for me. It's like, eh, I don't need a big party anymore. I'm kind of, well, I'm, kind I'm of sure the that. staff is probably pretty cool with you, right? Like pretty good to you, right? Like they probably, people that you work with are probably pretty nice on your birthday. Yeah. And, like, and then Only New Year's Eve people are in good. So I would assume maybe like, like, so I have a question, like on New Year's Eve working the restaurant, do people like what, this is really, I mean, fascinating to me. Do you guys get drunk a little bit after work? Like does everyone go out together? Like what happens? Cause you're basically taking care of the entire, like the guests who are there, like, and there's all this like pent up, you know, anxiety about like oh my god is this gonna be a special new year's eve or not it better be a special new year's eve and like are you guys also trying to take part are you imbibing like what happens or do you just lose new year's eve altogether i mean i think it depends a little bit where you work if you're one of the kind of places where like like, uh, the restaurants i've worked in have well it's depended a little bit but but often have not been places where people necessarily are going to stay super late like they might go out to have dinner and then they're going to go somewhere to watch fireworks or they're going to go to another event or something like that. So so places where it tends to quiet down a little bit earlier, I think you can kind of then, yeah, the staff usually sticks around and has a drink or goes somewhere else together. I will say that like two things about New Year's Eve, and it's not just New Year's Eve, but it's it's one of the most extreme examples. It's definitely a night where if you're in, if you're of a certain mindset and you work in the rest of the industry, you kind of almost like it's a night where you just like kind of go home because it's such a shit show everywhere. Like Bars are packed. There's always cover charge. There's always just, you know, it's it's an amateur night because it's the night that everyone sort of has permission to go out and get drunk. And some people in the industry, myself included, maybe some of our more, <laughs> some of the more curmudgeonly folk like me kind of just don't want to deal with it. So I'll, I might have a couple of glasses of champagne or something, but I'm, you know, for me, it's more like I'm kind of ready to call it a night. I've also probably worked pretty hard. And, and for me, again, I'm not, I'm not so young anymore. So it's not the kind of, you know, when I was 25, would I go out afterwards? Of course, because that's I went out after pretty much every shift. <laughs> but now uh, I do a lot less of that. I will say that as far as like 
it's definitely like there's a little bit of a when you get close to midnight if you're working like you know usually we'll have a champagne toast or something which is not something we do typically during service but uh but you know it's kind of accepted as like you know we're gonna do this on on rare occasions so maybe it's you know maybe new year's eve and maybe one or two other nights out of the year that are really really busy where you kind of want that little bit of celebration just for the staff at the end but yeah it's not it's not a there are definitely restaurants and definitely people who go out and just hit it hard after their shift but those tend to be the people who would do that on any given night not just on new year's eve all right makes sense makes sense so that's interesting to me though you know because yeah i always i always wonder about that for sure like what's happening with the staff and i mean you (laughs) definitely i and i mean i i try to only do one thing on new year's eve so I unfortunately am the person who is going to be at your restaurant till midnight. Like I, I either made plans to go to like a party or mm-hmm. I went to a restaurant where I knew that that was like a thing they were doing, which is like, come, come sit down with us at, you know, nine 30 or 10 and then have a big champagne toast. at midnight and like blah, 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 dance party afterwards. Um, and those, those restaurants that I've gone to before, the staff seems to be getting pretty lit too. Yeah. Um, but, but that's probably very different than like a fine dining restaurant where, yeah, you expect people to come in for like what a seven o'clock reservation or something and try to be done by 10 so they can get somewhere else. Yeah, for sure. Um, so this episode we wanted to quickly talk about, uh, well, not quickly, but maybe quicker than the last episode because it was quite long. <laughs> it's true. Um, basically some of our best memories of the last decade when it comes to drinking. So as, as we're sort of closing in uh, to, you know, 2019 going into 2020 talking about both, you know, things that were important to us throughout the decade. I also think just this past year, just to reflect is always important of, of things that were really, uh, you know, monumental in our drinking experience. And, you know, obviously we want to include our engineer, Nick, uh, who, who probably his only memory is going to be white claw, but you know, uh, <laughs> To, to hear what what he thought of as well in terms of what was really important. But um, Zach, I'll, I'll let you sort of kick it off. And any memory that really, you know, sticks out as like something being really monumentally important for you over this decade when it came to drinks? Yeah, I think the the first thing that occurred to me when I was sort of dwelling on this topic as we were discussing what we want to talk about today was, you know, the the thing that I found, and, and I can't say that this is this is maybe part me, this is part whatever was going on broadly in, in the culture. And we talked a little bit about it last week. But to me, one of the things that I found most interesting about this decade in drinking and, and in wine specifically, but I think you're starting to see it creep into beer and spirits as well, is is this real and pretty intense conversation about sustainability and this idea of, you know, I think for you and for me and, and hopefully for a lot of our listeners, you know, we really we we're passionate about this whole um enterprise, this whole industry, and sustainability as a conversation that has to be had on a lot of different levels. And I think for a lot of people, when you talk sustainability, it immediately goes to environmental concerns, and those are obviously extremely important. But, you know, I think it's important to think about sustainability in this really broad sense, which is also like, is it sustainable culturally? Is it sustainable economically? Is it sustainable for individuals' health and, and all those things? And and to me, so this was the decade when when I think that conversation for me personally, and especially the latter part of the decade, um, and for the industry as a whole, really became central to the conversation. And and I think, you know, so much of what we've talked about over the last year and a half of doing this podcast is in one way or another connected to this idea of, you know, how do we keep this industry alive and vibrant and and exciting, but also, you know, functioning for for ourselves and for um, future generations. And, and maybe that's not as high-minded as as those concerns that are, um, you know, more centered around, like, keeping planet Earth habitable, which obviously is also very important, much more important, frankly, but not the scope of this podcast particularly. So so for me, I think it was the it was this sort of consciousness in, in a lot of ways around 
all of the elements of wine, beer, spirits production and consumption that that tie into this element of, you know, can we keep doing this? How do we keep doing this? And in some cases, should we keep doing this? And I think the answer to, to those questions is is something I'm really excited to continue to explore going forward into the next decade. So for me, the biggest thing this decade, I think, uh, and you can come at me if you want, because uh, I'm going to talk about VinePair, is really the democratization of the world of drinks. And VinePair, I think, is a huge example of that democratization. Um, because of listeners to this podcast, because of readers, you know, we were able to take a small publication and grow it into the largest publication in the world about alcohol in only this decade. Um, and I think it's because people really have embraced this idea that anyone can really be passionate about these things um, and that there is a language that is has been used in the world of drinks for a very long time that was exclusionary and created barriers. And, you know, publications like ours, I think other uh, retailers, I think uh, professionals, et cetera, have been really pushing this last decade to break down those barriers and make uh, this a really inclusive community. Um, I think inclusive, not just in being able to come into the community and really uh, like you can drink anything you want, et cetera, but also inclusive in terms of thinking about, as we talked about with Victoria James, uh, you know, a few episodes ago, people of color, uh, you know, women, uh, people of who, who define themselves in whatever gender binary way they define themselves, uh, you know, talking about people of different sexual orientations, et cetera, that it's, it's a place for everyone. And I really think that happened very strongly in this decade where we said like, this is what, this is the kind of drink community we want to have. And we want to make anyone feel like they can be a part of it. This, this isn't supposed to be this elitist place where if you don't have access to a ridiculous seller or you don't have crazy amounts of money to go and buy the most expensive whiskey on or fuck it. If you can't even, if you've never had Pappy in your life, who gives a shit, right? That this instead is a place where we all can sort of be passionate about these things and say we're passionate about and be okay to say we don't know this one winery or we've never had that one, you know, crazy beer that that people were willing to wait in line for for five hours, right? Like that that was that's all okay because as long as we're all really excited about these things, that's what matters. And I think that also sort of has is what has driven be honest, Zach, I think the your point, which is this interest in sustainability, because we've all become so openly passionate about this world of drinks, we're willing to also say, okay, so now how do we ensure that it's here for the long the long run, right? Like we love this thing. It allows us to access culture, it allows us to connect with people. Um, and so how do we make sure that these great wines, these great beers, these awesome cocktails are gonna be around in five, 10, 20, 30, 50 years? Yeah, and I think you know, it's really interesting to talk about the way in which the democratization of the drinks um, industry and of of sort of people's engagement with it is to me kind of this fascinating microcosm of of what's happened with, or I guess it's happened in parallel or maybe a little bit lagging behind with food too, where where this idea that you know being in, in this country in particular in the U.S. being passionate about food or drink, um, whether you're in the industry or, or especially if you're just sort of the average person, used to be you know it was something that just you know, it was either seen as, you know, sort of, uh, um, you know, you're kind of seen as gluttonous, I guess, or, or I think with, with drinks, you know, you're kind of viewed with suspicion if you were someone who was really into just being passionate about them, whether the suspicion was that you were a snob or that you were an alcoholic or both. And I think that that is the democratization has come along with a, a redefinition of like, no, wait, this is like, these are really interesting things that, that topics that people can really be interested in and passionate about. And it's not weird or, or sort of a, a sign of low moral character or something that you are interested in in drinking. And, and you know, yes, there's obviously issues with excess, and, and that's something uh, that we always talk about. But but I think it is cool that 
that people are just it is there's there's more than ever before for people to be interested in and more people than ever before are interested in. and i i mean you know i'm not going to i'm not going to uh, i'm not going to come at you i think vinepair definitely has a lot to do with that not exclusively of course but but you guys we i guess have done a lot to uh to make that that space more accessible to a range of people who might not um uh, have otherwise felt comfortable there i think so all right so what else do you think in terms of this decade so you know the next thing it's funny cuz it's it's sort of a weird I don't know. It's not exactly a, a contrary to what we just talked about, but it kind of goes weirdly hand in hand with it in some sense, which is the 2010s and this decade for me and for the industry as a whole was also a decade that was defined by the rise of or maybe even just awareness of the sommelier. You know, the movie Psalm uh, was released early in this decade and it mirrored my own sort of um, timing. You know, I I got my uh, I got my certification uh, shortly before that movie came out, which was kind of an interesting coincidence because um, suddenly everyone who had no idea what the hell I was talking about when I did that, so everyone was like, "Oh yeah, yeah, yeah you're someone, yeah, I know what that is, of course." You know, you're like that movie, and obviously I have to kind of disobey some of the notion that uh, I'm not a master sommelier and that that there is a difference, but but it at least gave people some insight. I think the we've talked you know ad nauseum, so I'm not going to go into detail too much about the sort of effects that the rise of the sommelier has had on wine culture um, and broadly drinking culture in some way too. But it definitely has been this huge, um, you know, it's been hugely impactful to me because it is what I do or one of the things I do for sure. But it's also been really interesting to to see how this idea, and it kind of goes back to a little bit what you were talking about, although in a, in a slightly different way, this idea of being deeply knowledgeable about wine in particular, but I think again, you know, maybe anything in the beverage space uh, can kind of apply here. It's not, you know, it's not like it, it's seen as a valid choice. Now, you know, you might still have people. We obviously have talked about, you know, what is the future of the sommelier? What does that mean professionally? And, and there's lots of questions. But societally, you know, it's now, I guess what I would say is is at the end of the 20, 20 uh, teens, when I tell people what I do, I very rarely get a blank stare. And when I told them uh, at the beginning of the decade, I got almost all blank stares. So that's something that's changed. And, and you know, not just because of me, for sure. So basically, no one asks you anymore. So Zach, like, what what do you actually really want to do with your life when you tell me what you want to do? <laughs> Only my wife. And that's I mean that's a funny uh, just like anecdote. Some of my friends here who work in the trade have told me you know that they used to. I think again ten years ago, people would say, "Oh, so like, are you tr- are you trying to be an actor? Are you an artist? Like, what's your actual profession?" Like, no, 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 no. My profession is drinks like i'm you know i'm a mixologist i love making drinks i that's what i want to do for the rest of my life and ultimately maybe open bars or yada 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 or no no no, i'm a wine professional or i'm you know i I love i work at a brewery but that i think that did change you're right over the last decade where in all of these professions they became really recognized by i think the the uh, the world of drinks always knew they were very you know very highly respected professions but i think just in the broader sense of american culture we all embrace them as saying, oh, yeah, these are actual professions. Duh. Um, as opposed to it being something that someone, you know, was doing while trying to do something else. And I think you're actually seeing that, you know, grow outside of the large cities as well, where, you know, you're we're now expecting people across the country. I mean, I you know, we talked about this even when we were in Charleston to be career mixologists, career servers, career psalms, because we expect that now level of service that comes with comes from someone for whom this is their craft um, and for whom they take this craft very seriously. And, um, you know, I think that's 
that's changed over the last 10 years. And you're right. I, I think probably the movie some had a lot to do with it. I think just our awareness and drink in the drinking culture had a lot to do with it. It's, it's really, it's crazy how that changed in only 10 years. Yeah, for sure. And, and I think it's, it's a, it's definitely a, a positive trend. I think it occasionally has some negative side effects too, but, but it's definitely, um, it's definitely been positive. I want to, I want to give, uh, Nick, uh, a chance to talk if he's got, uh, if he's anything that, that in the last, uh, in his decade, which I guess, I, in, this last decade has encompassed your transition into legal uh, right, drinking. Yeah. Uh, God, because we're old. Um, so yeah, and Nick, anything that uh, that in the last decade or whatever eight years has? Uh, uh, since of course you didn't drink at all before you were twenty one. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Two thousand twelve turned twenty one. Had not had a sip before then. So that was everything changed for me. I think part of what you were saying about the t- democratization of it. I, from a drinker's perspective, I wasn't sure how much of my view towards drinks changed because I started. Uh, with the you know the cheap beer, the red solo cup in college, drinking beer that way, and then how much that has evolved within the past uh, seven years since then, I guess. So what I've looked for as a drinker has changed, but I also think it's probably during a time where a lot more stuff was available, and I have felt there's more availability of just like really nice beer, craft beer, and the cities I've lived in have certainly had that in Madison, Wisconsin, and now Seattle. Um, so I think. All of the the things that have been available, it seems like that has changed a lot since I started drinking and has been fun to explore as a drinker. Like there's just so much, so many other ways to experience the culture of different places through drinking, I think. And you guys talk about that a lot on this show, uh, which has been cool to see. Yeah, I think, I think you're completely right. Um, that's, that's a big thing that I, I definitely noticed in the last 10 years is that first of all, you could start getting really great craft beers, especially from you know, cities in other cities. So I remember in the, in the beginning of the teens, um, I used to have my parents actually illegally send me, um, cans of sweet water. And then towards the end of the teens, obviously you can get sweet water now in New York and lots of places. And it's a way for me to still access the place I went to college, a brewery that I remember really well. Um, I think that happened a lot right? That now we're able to drink beers from a lot of different places and sort of feel like, oh, we sort of also know what's going on in that in that city's beer scene based on the beers that we can try where we live. Um, and I think that's that's been really cool. And yeah, you're right. Like just the amount of quality choice in the last 10 years has just exploded. And I think across the board, right? In beer, in wine, and in spirits, right? Like you can, there are so many ridiculously good gins now it's insane. Ooh, I have I have gin you know? news from around the world too. Oh, go yes. I'll what go put that in here? So in uh, I was in Bangkok, Thailand, and a, I started chatting with a local because I found a lot of locals there want to. It seems like they want to practice their English. So if they heard me speaking English, they wanted to talk to me, which was kind of cool because I was traveling by myself. But anyway, one of them mentioned this distillery. Uh, I'll not mention it by name. I feel like they should pay for that on the Vine Pair <laughs> platform. No freebies here. Uh, but I went there. F- you can mention I it. I can mention it? Okay. Um, Iron Balls Distillery, it was called. Iron Balls. It started okay. by this Australian guy. And anyway, I went there, and the gin is unique because it starts with a coconut uh, base uh, is what they start it with. And then they um, put in things like ginger and lemongrass and things that are local to Thailand. And it was unlike any other gin I've had before, super smooth, and then just probably a little bit of juniper on the very uh, end of it. Uh, I'll bring some, I actually brought, bought a bottle there, so I'll bring some in for Zach to try someday. That'd be fun. But it, w- it was great gin, and the, the guy I was telling me about, they bought the distilling equipment from Germany, 
And so they're trying to like start that sort of culture in Thailand too, of the like local craft brews and local distilleries and things like that. And um, they only distribute in Southeast Asia, so, but they're trying to expand it. And so it was cool to see that, like this just little spot distilling its own gin in Bangkok, kind of this hidden place. I mean, that, I, I, yeah, you're seeing that everywhere, right? And it's, I think we're going to see more of it uh, in the next decade. I think, you know, you're going to find even more people who like when you're in New York, you're going to say, huh, I want to, tr- I'd love to try the local gins in New York and the local whiskeys in New York. And I think you're going to see more bars stocking it, stocking that kind of stuff. Just because, again, it's this like, oh, I want to take, I want to, you know, represent the people who I know locally, who I can go to the distillery on my, you know, day off or whatever and hang out with the distiller and see how they're making the, the product. And then that's the product I want to use at my bar. Um, I think you're definitely, that's going to become more and more common, even more than it has this uh, this last decade, which is super cool. Yeah. And I think also, you know, it's, it's interesting because it, it raises this question of, you know, at what point, if ever, does some of that sort of focus on local or at least regional product uh, in all those spaces, you know, whether it's beer, uh, spirits or wine, I guess, where applicable, does that cut into the sort of, you know, major global brands? I I don't think it's happened quite yet, maybe maybe at the margins, um, but it'd be fascinating to see if in the 2020s going forward uh, that, that you start to see, at least, you know, maybe in some places, you know, some erosion of the primacy of the the big global brands, whether they're spirits or, or beer or whatever. I, mean, I guess beer, we've seen it. Uh, obviously, craft beer has taken a, a decent chunk of the beer market here in the U.S. I don't think it's happened to the, anywhere near the same extent with spirits, uh, but maybe that's coming, you know, as more, you know, craft uh Distilling is a newer thing here in the U.S. than than uh, craft brewing, so it makes sense that it's taken longer for it to, uh, or it hasn't happened as quickly. They haven't taken the market share as quickly, although you know maybe it's happening. Um, and you know, Adam, you probably <laughs> you probably know the numbers better than I do. I think you will see this uh, in the same way as craft beer. It took a while with craft beer too, um, but for the distillers to consistently make a quality product across the board, right? So that no, there's not just one or two distillers that are making really great stuff, but that a bunch of people have, have learned how to hone the craft and really make great spirits. And that took craft beer a while too. Like we, we have to remember that, right? Craft beer really started with pretty much two prominent brands, right? You had like Pete's Wicked Ale, you had Sam Adams, you had Sierra Nevada, so three maybe. You had, you had Anchor Steam, okay, four. Um, but then there was a lot of other people trying to do beer in the 90s, that weren't doing great beer. Um, and then, you know, more people started trading information and getting to know each other. And then a lot of people started making really good beer. And now there's still definitely bad beer out there. Like, don't get me wrong, but there's a lot of really good beer out there, more good beer than there used to be from, you know, these craft producers. And so we've come to trust craft. I think it's going to take a little bit of time for us to really come to trust craft when it comes to distilling as well because right now in in all honesty the quality isn't 100 there there are some really amazing craft distillers and there are some craft distillers that are just realizing they can make a quick buck because they they're making the the gin or vodka or whiskey in their community so they can sell it but it's not that good um and so i think it's still going to take a little bit of time and maybe we'll see that develop in in the 2020s yeah for sure there's definitely still unfortunately a lot of crap craft uh spirits out there and and not necessarily through any fault of anyone other than that yeah it takes time to practice and it takes you know you have to hone uh the skill and, and we don't have a lot of 
received uh learned sort of uh knowledge about that because it's such a new industry in this country in a lot of ways especially unless you worked for a really really massive distilling operation and and even then you know stepping out and doing your own thing has so many different um challenges and, and just a different it's such a different scale that that even the people who have stepped away from the big uh the big distilling companies have in some ways struggled to just uh find you know, sort of find their process and, and figure out what works for them. Okay, so I want to talk a little bit about a couple of specific things that I had this decade and and including uh, this year that I I found um, particularly enjoyable and and I I just I thought it would be um, kind of a nice way to to for me at least to kind of wrap up what I feel like has been a pretty uh, pretty cool decade. So so the first is um, I think you know the this was the decade where I had I think at least I don't recall having had it before. Um, I had some um, some spirits that I'd never had before. So mezcal being one of them, um, we did a we did a podcast not that long ago uh, where we talked tequila and mezcal, uh, and I think it was also the decade where uh, I really kind of found myself getting interested in uh, rum. So again, we got this sort of uh, theme of spirits from uh, the tropics or subtropics, and we did a, a great podcast uh, on uh, rum as well. And and you can check those out in the archives if you uh, missed them. Uh, and and then for me, I think the last thing I will say is. And, and I know you kind of share this sentiment, Adam. Um, I got the opportunity to take a take a trip to Greece, and and I just I, I, of all the countries in Europe that make wine, um, I still feel like Greece is the place that there's so much incredible potential there, and they're starting to to you know sort of tap into that. Uh, more and more of it is coming to the U.S., and I just I remain. I just I'm super fascinated by it. The history, the diversity, uh, the quality in certain places, and um, I just I find that like I can't. You know, it, it's just there's not there's 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 not a part of the well, I guess there there are many parts of the country that interest me, uh, many varieties and many styles of wine, and I look forward to um, continuing to explore not just Greece, of course, but it's a place that uh, that I'm I'm particularly excited about. I mean, you know, on the Greece point, I 100% agree with you. Um, I think that it's a it's a super interesting country, and definitely in this decade, probably the country. First of all, it's the first really wine country I went to this decade uh, outside of the U.S. because it was for my honeymoon because uh, I got married this decade. And Me too. Was, that was before I started, <laughs> before I started. Yeah. And before I started Vine Pair. Um, so I guess really my first wine trip was uh, on our honeymoon when we were in Santorini. We visited all the wineries and checked out a ton of great Asiatico. And I've been back a few times since. I think it's a it's an awesome country. Uh, I think also the m- memorable stuff for me this decade, you know, very quickly, uh, it definitely was also a decade where I, you know, gained an appreciation for, you know, lots of different styles of uh, spirits. I think, you know, prior to this decade, I really only drank whiskey. Um, and so, you know, discovering bitter spirits, uh, Amaro's, really cool gins that, that I talked about a bunch on this podcast already um, was definitely something that was very cool for me this decade. Um, I also, you know, in all honesty, like really hadn't had a lot of champagne um, until until the tw- until twenty teens, uh, and a lot of people have gotten to share have shared champagne with me, and I've 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 understood what the what people are crazy about with it. Um, I still don't drink it often because it's quite expensive, um, but I do understand like what your whole Somme cadre uh, <laughs> seat in it, uh, which which is which is I guess cool for me. You know, it, it is it is a pretty delicious uh, product. Um, and then in terms of beer, I mean, I, I kind of just cemented the thing I like, which is at this point in time, towards the end of the decade, I'm pretty much uh, set in my ways. that I, I pretty much enjoy like the IPA and the New England IPA. That's still like my my favorites. And I realized that like 
I can appreciate the sour beers, but they're like not my thing um, in the same way. Although I really like wines that happen to have really high acidity. So I don't totally get it. But then I, I don't really like the, the really super funky naturals. So, you know, it is what it is. But those for me would be the, the biggest stuff of the decade. Um, and I'm really looking forward to what comes in the 2020s. I'd love to hear what our readers think as well. So if you've enjoyed this podcast the last year, please, please give us a rating or a review on iTunes, Stitcher, uh, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. iTunes, guys, is the most and gals is the most important. Um, it really is the place where the majority of you are listening and where the majority of people discover the show. So if you can leave us a really good rating, five, five stars, five stars only, um, <laughs> and a good review, that would be awesome. Um, and then also shoot us an email at podcast at vinepair.com and tell us what were some of your most memorable um, memories of the, of the memorable things of the decade, drinks, et cetera, that you tried, uh, you know, events that happened. And I'd love to also hear, it'd be really cool if you could shoot us some of your predictions for what you think is going to happen in the world of drinks in the 20s. Um, I think the roaring 20s are definitely coming back and it'll be really interesting to see what happens in the world of drinks in the next 10 years. Uh, Zach, as always, it has been a pleasure. Thanks for coming on this journey with me in 2019. Um, and I will see you right back here, 2020. Same to you, Nick. Just don't drink too much White Claw over New Year's Eve. <laughs> Deal. And I will say before we wrap up here, you guys mentioned two episodes ago, The Aged Eggnog. And when I listened to that, I was catching up on the show. Great show. Great shows, by the way. Um, it did <laughs> yeah, fall apart when vacation. I was gone. Yeah. Um, I have been aging some eggnog for just over a month based on Elton Brown's recipe. And uh, I'll probably make Zach try some next time I see him. Yeah, he can bring it in. I got to hear what you think about it. My first, my first drink of the new year. Wonderful. Well, Zach, I'll see you here. And everyone else, have a wonderful, wonderful New Year's Eve. Happy, joyous holiday season. And all best for 2020. Sounds great. Thanks so much for listening to the Vine Pair Podcast. If you like what you've heard, please rate us or review us wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps people discover the show. Now for the credits. The Vine Pair Podcast is produced by myself and Zach Jabal and is engineered by Nick Patrie. We're recorded out of Cloud Studios in Seattle, Washington, and also in our New York City headquarters. I'd also like to give a special shout out to my co-founder, Josh Mallon, and the rest of the Vine Pair staff who help us conceive of the show every single week. Thanks again for listening.